Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Easter 2017. And uh, I just want to say to the band, thank you so much. Uh, that was absolutely awesome. I feel like we could just say, all right, great. That's, we've had Easter. Let's, let's go and enjoy the rest of our day because it's, it's absolutely beautiful and gorgeous out there. But I'm glad that you've chosen to come and spend some of your Sunday morning, your Easter morning with us as we go and we look at Jesus and celebrate the empty tomb. Uh, you know, it was just three years ago on an Easter Sunday that Riverwood Church had its public debut. Uh, we, to let the community know, we sent out 10,000 flyers. We later discovered that was a few too many because I think people up in Charles City uh, got the flyer. Uh, but we sent these out. And on the back of that flyer, we said that Easter was like the Super Bowl of the Christian faith. Which is saying something because this last Super Bowl mesmerized America. Well, okay, not entirely. Uh, the, the first three quarters were actually really boring unless you were an Atlanta Falcons fan. It, it, it was Super Bowl 51. It was the Atlanta Falcons against the New England Patriots. And the Falcons rushed out to this huge lead. And it just looked like it was going to be an absolute blowout. And I think most of America tuned out except for when the commercials came on. But then New England started doing the unthinkable. They started mounting a comeback. And pretty soon, it looked like they had a chance. And on one of the last plays of the fourth quarter... They actually scored to tie the game, send it into overtime where they won the coin flip, got the ball, and proceeded to march down and score the winning touchdown. Biggest comeback in Super Bowl history. And so naturally, when you have an architect who helps lead a comeback like that, it's your quarterback. And so Tom Brady, the longtime quarterback for the Patriots, was named the MVP, the most valuable player of the game. Now, I do just a little bit on Twitter, not on it a ton, but I'm, I'm there enough. And I just happened to be on Twitter after the game. And I noticed people were not calling Tom Brady the MVP. They were calling him the GOAT. And I, this didn't make sense to me. I, it, to me, to call someone a GOAT sounds like an insult. You know, like you're saying, uh, you know, like you got something pulled over on you or, you know, like a scapegoat. Uh, you know, you, you blame someone else so that you can get away with something. Th that's what I thought of with goat. But what I noticed was that a bunch of people who were calling him the goat were his fans. Like these are people who liked Tom Brady. And I noticed the goat was always in all caps. And then it dawned on me. It stood for greatest of all time. Now, I am not here to start a debate on Easter Sunday whether or not Tom Brady really is the greatest of all time. Okay, maybe you think Tom Brady is. Maybe you can't stand the guy. Maybe you have no idea who Tom Brady is. My point is this, that today on Easter Sunday, the Super Bowl of the Christian faith, we've gathered together to celebrate the true goat, the greatest of all time, and his name is Jesus. Now, now, some of you, when I say that, inside your heart, you're going, yes. But some of you inside your heart are probably eye-rolling. Like, did he really just do that? Did he really just go from Tom Brady in the Super Bowl to Jesus? Yes, I did. It, some people call this a Jesus juke. It's where the subject starts out over here, and then someone, that like oversaved person, the really super spiritual person, somehow manages to steer the conversation over to Jesus, and everyone else is just sitting there stunned, like, did that just happen? A guy by the name of John Acuff coined the phrase Jesus juke. If you know anything about football, when a running back is running down the field and he jukes, he makes a move and he causes the defender to miss him. It's a juke. And, and some people do this Jesus juke. John Acuff came up with a phrase when one day he happened to be in an airport. 
And right next to him is this really buff guy. And all of a sudden, the guy just drops to the floor and just starts doing tons of push-ups. And John thought this was really funny. And so he tweeted it out or, so, you know, Facebook, somewhere on social media. And a bunch of his friends and his fans start commenting back, like, take a picture. And he says, you know, I have a personal policy against snapping photos of people who could snap me in half. You know, and he's like, so I'm not going to do it. So just trust me. This guy really is doing this right in the airport. And then he said he got the Jesus juke. Someone says, wouldn't it be great if all of us were as dedicated to our faith, our family, and our finances? He says they just took this funny moment and juked it over to something serious. And he says it just kind of left you this funny feeling. And so when I go from Tom Brady to Jesus as the goat, some of you are going, yeah. And some of you are going, really? The reason I call Jesus the goat is because today, on Easter Sunday, we are going to a very strange place in the scriptures. We are going into Leviticus. And we're going to look at a story about two goats. And these two actual farm animals are going to surprisingly point us to Jesus and the Easter story. So let me pray. Father, I pray that uh, today you would be what we see. You would be who we would hear from. That it wouldn't be about what I've prepared. It would be about what you have for the people that you have gathered together. Every single person in this room is at a different place in their spiritual journey. And I pray that right now you would speak to each and every one of them, no matter where they are at. And that each of us would see Jesus for who he really is, what he has really done. And we would walk out on this Easter Sunday truly celebrating Jesus. Because as we look at this story, we're going to see he really is and was the greatest of all time. And I pray that that would be the song that we sing today. In Jesus' name, I ask for this. Amen. All right, so if you brought a Bible or you've got a Bible app on your phone, open it up to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus 16. Now, if you're doing the His Story Bible reading plan with us, by the way, the second quarter bookmarks are now back on the back table. You noticed it ended today, uh, our quarter one. So quarter two starts tomorrow, so you can pick those up uh, back there. But if you've been doing that with us, you've been noticing, we've been trucking along through Genesis with a few chapters and other sections. And then we got into Exodus, and we were doing a lot there. And then all of a sudden this week, we hit Leviticus. I heard a pastor once say that a lot of people on New Year's Day set a, a, you know, a resolution to read through the entire Bible. So they start off in Genesis, they're making it along, they get into Exodus, and then they hit Leviticus. And it's kind of like running on the beach, and you're just sprinting. And then all of a sudden you hit the ocean. And you're still going with the same effort, but it just suddenly slows down. That's what it's like reading Leviticus. It is really difficult, and that's when most New Year's resolutions end at that point. And so why in the world would we jump into Leviticus on Easter Sunday, this really slow, boring book? Because right in the middle of it, we discover it's still about Jesus. As we've been looking throughout this entire His Story ser series, excuse me, the entire Bible is all about Christ. This is the Jesus story. In fact, it's about the Easter story. And we've been seeing every single week through the series that all of it points to Christ. Even weird books like Leviticus. So let me read Leviticus 16, verses 3 through 5. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. 
He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take them from the congregation of the people of Israel, two male goats for a sin offering, and one ram for a burnt offering. Now, if you were to go back into Leviticus and start reading from chapter 1 up to this point, you're going to notice God has been giving a lot of laws. That's why it's so boring for so many people. And if you were to continue on past chapters 16 and 17, you would notice God continues to give a lot of laws. And those laws fall into about three main categories. They have to do with worship, how the people are to conduct their, their worship of God. Some of the laws are dietary, they're telling them what they can and cannot eat. And then some of the laws are civil, just like good advice on how to live their life, you know, as, as neighbors and as families and, and to interact with other uh, communities. And this is kind of the majority of these laws. Now, I've never personally gone and counted all of the laws, but I'm told that there were 613 of these Jewish laws. Could you imagine going around trying to always keep in mind obeying these 613 laws? I, I think you would have moments where you would realize, Oh, whoops, I, I just broke one. But some of the laws, when you broke them, they would just simply make you ceremonially unclean. For, for instance, in Leviticus 13, it talks about skin diseases. All right, so if you were a mom or a dad, your child got a skin disease, you would care for them. You would help them. Now, you didn't sin. You didn't do anything wrong. But by interacting with them, by touching them, you would now be ritually unclean. And to get clean again, you would just simply go through some sort of ceremony. It might be bathing. You might need to, you know, go outside the camp or, you know, you wash certain things. Or it's just a waiting period. There were various laws that when you broke them, they simply made you ceremonially unclean. You did some sort of ceremony. You became clean again. And you could continue in your worship of God at the tabernacle. But some of the laws, when you broke them, they didn't just make you unclean. You actually sinned. If you go into Leviticus chapter 20, you'll see some laws about child sacrifice and how God kind of says, ah, bad idea. I'm the creator of life. Don't you take it. And if you're sacrificing the children to these false god Moloch, there's going to be a penalty because it is sin. So you have some of these laws that when you break, you're ritually unclean, but some of them when you break, it is sin. Now, as you could imagine, there would be times where the people are doing life they break one of these laws, and it didn't just make them ritually unclean. They actually sinned, but they didn't realize it. Like it was unintentional, or they actually forget. I, I think all of us in this room could relate. If you've ever wrestled with an addiction, you know that often you end up putting that addiction before anything else, before your family, before your job, before you know, your own health, before your God. It, it often becomes sin, you know that there's no possible way for you to go and stand before God and confess every single incident that you committed in that addiction. You, you just couldn't. The, the days, everything just kind of blurs together. It, you couldn't do it, even those unintentional sins. Or maybe this one you could relate to. You're driving to work, pretend you work down in Cedar Falls. Some of you don't have to pretend, you actually do. But you work in Cedar Falls, you're on your way down, and someone goes speeding by, they cut you off, and inside the silence of your car, you say a few things against them that would not be honoring to God, all right? And you realize you've sinned, but in the moment, you're not thinking about it. You're just enraged. How could they do that? They're going to hurt someone. But by the time you get to work, you walk in the door, you step back into the soap opera of work or your own work itself— You've forgotten about what happened on 218. And you've sinned, 
but you haven't done anything about it. It's like you're going speeding, you break the law, but there was no cop to catch you. You still broke the law. It's just with God, he's not like a cop who can only be at one intersection at a time. He's everywhere all the time. And so he's seen it all. So even though you forget, he hasn't. He's fully aware of the sin that you have committed. That's what this day of atonement is about. It's called, in the, for the Jews, they call it Yom Kippur, the, the day of atonement. And it starts right here in Leviticus 16. You see, it starts by God saying to Aaron that he's to go into the holy place. The holy place was the tabernacle. And so on this holy day, Aaron would come to the tabernacle. I want you to imagine it. The Jews at this time, the Israelites, are about 600,000 people. They've escaped out of Egypt. They're living in the wilderness in tents. They're a temporary city. And there's even like rules and laws on where the different tribes are to be placed. North, south, east, west. And right in the center is the tabernacle. This tabernacle has a big curtain put around it. Only certain people, priests and other uh, individuals, were allowed to come in. But then you notice that inside of that curtained area is another tent. That is the tabernacle. And the first half of that was called the holy place. And then a little deeper was the most holy place. But it's in that holy place that much of what we're going to read about today takes place. Aaron is to come to this holy place. And you notice that he has to do certain things. First thing he has to do is bathe. Then he has to put on certain garments, these linen garments. And he's to take in with him four animals, a bull, a ram, and two goats. Now, if you read into verse 6 here in chapter 16, you see that the bull is for the sin offering for Aaron. Uh, This week as I was studying this, this surprised me. Because you look at the goats and you think, well, they're little. Like, surely he would sacrifice one of the goats for himself and like the big bull for the people. But no, God has Aaron sacrifice this big bull, this ox, for his sin, for his household. And then he has to do certain things with the blood. Uh, The ram, it says twice in there that it's for a burnt offering. But it doesn't tell us like who that's for. If you go back into Leviticus 1, you'll see that burnt offerings were another type of sin offering. But it doesn't exactly say who or what it's for here in chapter 16. So then that leaves us with the two goats. And this is where it gets really strange. Verse 7. Then he, Aaron, shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Now, I'll just say it. This is weird. You've got these two goats here, and you cast lots. It's basically you're flipping a coin. So you name one goat heads, the other one tails. You flip the coin, which everyone comes up. You just say, whoops, sorry, you're dead. And the other one gets to go head off into the wilderness free. And then you've got this Azazel. Who or what is Azazel? If you don't know, you're in good company, because neither do the scholars. I discovered all sorts of theories on what or who Azazel is. Uh, Some scholars believe that Azazel was a demon. And and so the idea of you're sending off this other goat to this demon. In fact, I trying to put this slideshow together uh, yesterday. I went on Google Images and I typed in Azazel. And yep, a lot of people think Azazel is a demon based on the images that I saw. 
Other scholars, though, they think that it was a location out in the wilderness. It wasn't a demon as much as it was a place. But then there's a lot of scholars who think it's actually a play on words. That it's a combination of two words, the Hebrew word for goat and the Hebrew word for escape. And when you put those together, it would sound like Azazel. And that's why some translations call this the scapegoat. So this is, these are the two goats. Now, if Azazel bothers you, I want to reassure you, don't worry about Azazel. Because he, or what, is not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is these two goats. Because I believe as we look at these two goats, we are going to see two aspects of atonement. Both goats point to Jesus, and they show him as the true goat, the greatest of all time. And it helps us to see the Easter message. So the first goat helps us to see the first aspect, that sin can be forgiven. That an aspect of atonement is sin forgiven. And notice verse 15. Then he, Aaron, shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Did you hear it? The goat and if you go back to uh, verse, uh, what is it, 5, you see that these goats come from the people. And one of them is killed for the people. It is for the forgiveness of their sin. Now, if you are a uh, card-carrying member of PETA, that probably bothers you. Like, why must this innocent little goat die? Right? And, and why couldn't you just wait until, like, it keels over? Uh, you know, why not just like, oh, it, it, it died of old age or died of sickness. So here you go, God. Now here's a dead goat. That'll take my place, right? No, because I don't think we appreciate just how serious sin is. I, I know I don't. There have been a number of times in life where as a pastor, someone asks me to counsel them, whether it's one-on-one or, or with a couple. And inevitably, as we're talking, I start to see and sense There's some sin issues going on. Sometimes it's their own sin. Sometimes it's sin that has been done in life and it's affected them. And I find myself just feeling heartbroken and sad. And and I'll pray with them. I try and bring the scriptures to them. But often when I'm away from them, I find myself praying for them. And I will reach this point where I realize how much sin has devastated their life. And I'll just say things like, oh God, I hate sin. And then it's almost like God, because as I'm pointing at that sin, says, Aaron, you've got three fingers pointing back at yourself. Do you really hate sin? Because when it comes to my own sin, oh man, I'm really good at justifying, excusing, you know, okay, yeah, God, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for that. But, but, you know, I can make excuses. I don't always take my sin as seriously as I should. Because I'm looking at sin from human eyes. You know, when I compare myself to other people, I'm not that bad. But other people aren't the standard. The standard is God, and he is perfect and holy, and I am not. When God created Adam and put him in the Garden of Eden, he only gave him one rule. Not 613 laws, one. But he told him, if you break this one rule, this one law, you will die. The penalty for sin is death. And we see that over and over and over through the scriptures. (laughs) And what's so hard is that God being a holy God, 
is also a just God. Trust me, you want a God who wants justice. If you don't have a God who wants justice, he's not fair. This isn't a God you can trust. We all need and long for a God who is a just God. But that also scares us. Because if he's a just God, he looks at me and even knows that I have done sins unintentionally or I've forgotten about them, and yet the penalty is death. But not only is he a just God, he's also a merciful God. And what you see over and over through the scriptures and what I've experienced over and over in life is that he mercifully allows the punishment that I should pay for my sin to be transferred That's what this day of atonement is all about. And that's what we see with the first goat. That God allows the sins of the people to be on the first goat and it is sacrificed for them. Now, the blood, that sometimes really bothers us. But if you look over at Leviticus 17, verse 11, you hear God say this. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. This helps you understand why the writer of Hebrews says this. Chapter 9, verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. We all, most of us, know biology enough that we have hearts that are pumping, coursing blood throughout us. And if we lose too much of that blood, we die. The life is in the blood. And without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness of our sin. That is why Jesus is the goat. He's the first goat. Because he went to a cross and died in our place. If you've seen Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ... You saw a very gory film. And I wish I could tell you that he actually sensationalized it. But unfortunately, I have a feeling that Mel may not even got it close enough. It was a bloody scene. And Jesus was fully emptied. Because that's how great our sin was and is. But that's what shows us in the atonement. That our sin can be forgiven. On Easter Sunday, I think that's what a lot of us celebrate. On the day called Good Friday, which for Jesus really wasn't very good, he went to a cross, went through that torture for us. And that's what we celebrate. Many of us, we just sang about it. We sing about this freedom, this forgiveness that comes through Jesus. But there's more. Because there were two goats. Look at this second goat with me. Back in Exodus 16, Uh, I think it's, uh, what, verse 20? Yeah, verse 20. All right, and so when he, Aaron, has made an end of atoning for the holy place, all right, and he's done with the the goat, uh, and he's done the atonement for the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay his hands both on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat And send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area. And he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Imagine the scene. This city of tents. On this holy day. The equivalent of their Easter. They gather together outside the tabernacle. They pile in trying to see everyone gets quiet 
And they've seen the two goats and the cast lots. And they see Aaron take the one goat in. And they know that inside it is being brutally murdered because of their sin. Then all of a sudden Aaron walks out. His hands are bloody. And he takes the live goat. And whether he grabs it by the horns or just puts his hand on its head, he begins to pray. And I think many of the people could hear his prayer. And he begins to confess the sins of the people. Their known sins, but also their unintentional sins. Their forgotten sins. I wonder how long he took. They stood there in silence as he puts all this on the goat. And then a guy's in readiness. He takes the goat and he takes it away. And you realize our sin just left. That's the second part of the atonement. It isn't just that your sin is forgiven. It's that it's actually removed. It is taken away from you. I think some of us struggle with actually forgiving ourselves. We say, yeah, yeah, yeah. God, I know you've forgiven me through Jesus. You know, my sin is forgiven, but we don't actually let it go. We don't let it be released. We hang on to it. It's almost like we still identify with it. And we think that if somehow we forgive ourselves, if we let it go, that maybe somehow we haven't truly atoned for it. And we're missing the point. The point is that it was all paid for. Israel had been trying to uphold these 613 laws. They were trying to clean up their act. They were trying to do it all right, and they couldn't, no matter how hard they tried. And that is why once a year, Aaron would take these two goats, and one would have its throat slit, and the other one would have the sins put upon it, and it would be taken away. So that the people could see and visualize and realize their sin had been forgiven because the blood had been shed, and their sin had been taken away because they watched it go. Some of you here today need to hear that on Easter Sunday. That you are forgiven and your sin has been removed. You do not have to hold on to it any longer. That is the whole point of Jesus. Right here in the middle of Leviticus, one of the hardest books to read is the Easter story. Both of these goats point to Jesus and what he did. That you are both forgiven and freed. So what this means is that if you are a follower of Jesus, you need to hear that because of the Easter story of Good Friday through Easter Sunday, Jesus died, his blood was shed so that your sin could be forgiven, but he also burst out of a grave revealing your sin had been absolutely and completely and entirely removed from you. I love how King David put it in Psalm 103. 103 verse 12, he said this, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. You you do realize that if you started heading north and you always went north, you would eventually reach a place where you would start to go south. Once you reach the North Pole, no matter which way you stepped, it would be south. You couldn't go east or west or any other direction. The only direction you could go was south. You would reach the end of north. But if you start heading east... You will never reach a point where you stop going east. You won't accidentally start going west. You'll just continue to go and go and go. Because east never meets west. That's how far your sin has been removed from you. You do not have to hold on. You do not have to keep it. It has been taken from you. So if you're a Jesus follower, I want you to hear today. You are freed and forgiven. Your sin was paid through the blood of Jesus and it was removed from you. 
But if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to know this can be yours. You do not have to clean up your act in order to come to God. The ancient Israelites were trying to do that and failing miserably at it. That's why God created Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It was the holiest of days for the Israelites. And here we are. Most of us in this room consider ourselves Christians. And so we come to our holiest day, Easter. And yet some of us are not letting go. We're holding on, not fully understanding what took place through the cross and through the grave. So what I want you to hear, if you're not a follower of Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Your sins can be removed. All you do is place your faith in Jesus and realize he took the punishment for you. It is finished. I realize that that, for some of us, that is a very difficult step to do. Because it is asking us to place our faith in a story, in a person that most of us have never seen. We've maybe heard this story, and yet it's hard to comprehend. And yet it's true. And if today you sense God saying, it's true. I know you. I love you. I know your story. I know what you've done, and I've paid it. It's over. Then I'm going to just invite you place your faith in Jesus. Most people, when they make a decision like that, they mark the moment in prayer. They just kind of need to put a marker in life and say, on this day, on Easter Sunday, April 16th, 2017, was the day my eyes were opened and I realized that Jesus was the goat, that he was killed for me, his blood was shed, my sin has been removed, and he truly is the greatest of all time. And so because he gave his life for me, I will now give my life to follow him. In a moment, I'm going to pray. And I'm just going to create some space in that prayer for you to talk to God. And I'll kind of help guide it a little bit. But really, I want it to be for you. There's no magic formula. There aren't certain words you need to use. What God wants is you and your heart. Because I believe what God wants to do is to take you and mold you into the image of the Jesus. At Riverwood, we are convinced that what this world needs are a bunch of people who will love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. And that journey can start today. But I also realize that I'm talking to some people who they know the Jesus story. And yet they've, being honest, realize that they have not given themselves fully to God. For whatever reason, you have been hanging on to some sin. And yeah, 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 you know that Jesus died on a cross. You know that your sins have been forgiven. But you aren't following the truth that it's been removed. And today I want you to find freedom. So I'd love for every single one of you to walk out of this room talking about his amazing grace, truly celebrating this Easter, that it doesn't just become a day about family and a day about food and a day about plastic eggs, that it really is a day about his resurrection and what he did for you. So join me in prayer. Holy, gracious God, Right now in our hearts, we bow down before you because you are good. Your justice demanded that sin be paid. And yet we couldn't pay that penalty ourselves because it would have meant our death. And that is why you sent Jesus, the greatest of all time, to go and die. His blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sin. And yet 
his resurrection shows us that our, our sin has been absolutely and completely removed from us. We can come into life. Just like he stepped out of the grave alive, we can step out of our sin, out of our shame, into this life with you. And so that's why I just pray right now for anyone who's here that has not fully placed their faith in you. And today they sense you asking them to begin that journey of following Jesus. So, Father, I pray, I know you, that you will hear them as they pray something like this. God, I realize that I am a sinner, that my sin needs to be paid for. I didn't always mean to sin, but I did. And yet you created a day of atonement for me. And it happened on a Good Friday and on an Easter Sunday. So Jesus, because you gave your life so that my sin could be forgiven and removed, I now give my life to follow you. I make you my leader. Help me to follow you to the end of my days. God, I also want to pray for those that at one time in their life, maybe as a kid or maybe last year or even last week, prayed a prayer like that. And I I pray that they wouldn't think that they've somehow lost their salvation because this is all about a work of you. But instead, they realize that they know the truth and they've not been living in sync with that truth. So God, I pray you'd hear them as they pray right now. Father, we confess our sin. We've returned to the old man, to the old ways. And we've not been letting you be first and central in our lives. I thank you, God, for your grace. I thank you that my sin has been forgiven and it's been removed. God, help me to live in that freedom. Help me not to cling on to that sin that so easily entangles. Instead, help me to cling to Jesus and his gospel and his grace. Jesus, I say thank you for Easter. Thank you that you came to this earth knowing that one day you would die. And yet you went through it because of love for us. And yet you also burst out of a grave because no one could take your life from you unless you laid it down and no one could bring it back up. Only you could do that. And you did it. And you've been changing millions of people around the world throughout history. And I believe that you want to change many of us in this room. So help us to not to celebrate Easter once a year, but to day in and day out, truly celebrate you as the goat, the greatest of all time. May we cheer you more than we'd ever achieve a cheer for our winning team. Because what you have done impacts our eternity. So may we celebrate you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray together.